Hello and welcome to the Hippocampus podcast, a place where we discuss the strategies that help optimise learning. So join us for some grassroots conversations where we share some practical tips and insights that might just make your learning journey a little easier. In this episode, we discuss racial harassment and inequalities in medical education and what we can all be doing to raise awareness, improve support and prevent this issue to ensure inclusivity for every student within medical education. So let's join the hosts, me, Lisa, a lecturer in medical education, Elliot, Kish and Sophie, who are medical students, and also two special guests, Takunda Nawatiwa and Divine Maduka, both of whom have been involved with a number of initiatives aiming to educate, raise awareness and support in this area, including working with the BMA Charter for Racial Harassment. Welcome back and hello everybody. Hello, hello. guys. Uh, great to have everybody back. How is everyone doing? Very well, thanks. All good, Very thank good. You. Glad to be back on air. Yes, yes, you weren't here, were you, last week, Kishan? You, uh, I wasn't, no. You, you abandoned us at the last minute. <laughs> I did, yeah, I did. It's the, it's the realities of being on placement, I think, is catching up to me a no, little we, bit. We know where your priorities lie. <laughs> In the operating theatre, I think. So we are really excited to have two guests join us this week, Takunda Niwatua, a third-year medical student, and Divine Maduka, who is a fourth-year medical student, both have been doing a considerable amount of work in helping raise awareness of the issues around ha- racial harassment and racial inequalities in medical education. So they join us today to discuss what they've been doing, highlight how we all have a part to play in these issues and what we can be doing both as staff involved in education, uh, but also as, as students as well. So Takunda and Divine, hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. Could you tell us then just briefly a little bit about, about yourselves? Yeah, sure. Um, so as you said, I'm Takunda, I'm a third year medical student. I'm currently um, on my GP block, about to finish it. It's been very lovely, um, <laughs> very nice and relaxed. Um, the only thing is at the moment, we're not actually seeing many patients all on the telephone, so I've perfected my telephone voice. Um, but apart from, but yeah, I'm having a good time, yeah. Um, I got involved with the BMA uh, Racial Harassment Charter um, just at the beginning of this academic year in August, actually. Um, it was something I really wanted to get involved in. And then I actually, I've, I've known Divine since I started at the first year. So she's, she's been there from the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then what about yourself then, Divine? So as you said, I'm a fourth year medical student. I've just finished my mental health block and I'm just starting my paediatrics block in Peterborough. It's been quite good so far. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have been involved with the racial harassment charter group and I also recently um, helped start a new society of which I'm the president of um, in Leicester which is like a medics African Caribbean society. Um, Just wanted to start off really because you know we we think it's really important that undergraduate medical education reflects the diversity of our population and that all students should expect to learn in a supportive and an inclusive environment, both at university and on placement like some of us and most of us are. Um, sadly, however, we know that ex- the experience of medical students from black, Asian or minority ethnic backgrounds may not always live up to expectations, with many experiencing greater levels of undermining behaviour, microaggressions and racial harassment. 
So we wanted to start off by just asking sort of how common are instances of racial harassment experienced by medical students? And can you describe some examples of behaviours or comments um, that may have been experienced by some of our colleagues and students? Yeah, sure. Um, I think one thing that's kind of something to mention is the especially during the summer um, with BLM George Floyd, that people are realising that racism is the, the buff racism is no longer a racial slur. Like it's either this or it's not racist. It's no longer that. And as you said, Kish, you know, there's microaggressions, there's racial gaslighting. Um, and by microaggressions, it's it's something that kind of flies under radar because it's not so obvious if you even you've not lived that experience. Um, so it's also it's really hard to kind of talk about or report because some people will be like, oh, like are you sure that's what it was and like you know examples of microaggressions could be for example um despite having our lanyards on our stethoscopes assuming that you know people with a cleaner or a hca or a nurse or being told i speak really well and they were really surprised i speak english i think divine's had that one quite a few times yeah, as well I've, yeah um, yeah I, i've had it a lot of times actually um i've had other people were actually surprised that I spoke English at all. I was quite interested as to what language they thought I was going to speak. The odd situations aren't really the ones where, you know, people are outwardly behave in a way that's outwardly obvious. It's the ones that are quite subtle and day to day they build up and the cumulative effects can be quite serious in the long run. In terms of how common, it's not always recorded and the data is not always collected. And also a lot of the time it's not reported either because people think nothing will be done about it or because a lot of the time it is quite subtle and so it's easy to feel well it's not that big of a deal because it 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 wasn't that obvious it wasn't that big I shouldn't cause a fuss over it and so it's quite underreported and also data isn't collected for the ones that are reported but just from my experience talking to people since I've made this society that I've made with the Medics African Caribbean Society when you talk to people, you see that almost everyone has at least one or two situations where they either at the time or when they walked away and they reflected back, thought that wasn't quite right. Um, and I think that's a good thing about medicine because we're encouraged to reflect a lot of the time. Mm -hmm. And so it's quite easy to like think back at situations. And often that's when you realize that probably shouldn't have happened that way. Um, T will probably be able to tell you more about, you know, statistics and generalised views and why the BMA Charter was brought. It is chronically underreported. So the reason she said before, you're not sure um, if it's a big enough deal. Um, you're also weighing up the consequences of reporting someone. You know, we're in a position where we're medical students, we need to get signed off and, you know, we need to keep a good rapport with everyone. Um, but the BMA Racial Harassment Charter did do a survey well, the BMA, sorry, did the survey, and it, from that survey, they kind of uh, started the charter. Um, and in that survey, 55% uh, of BAME doctors, only 55% of BAME doctors, thought there was respect for diversity and culture of inclusion in their workplace, which is only just over half. There's also the biggest kind of racial harassment in terms of uh, what was collected in the survey was the microaggressions, such as jokes demining or yeah demeaning um diminishing people's worth as well being overlooked for doing the same or better than uh, the white counterparts um so really the bma racial harassment charter that's really is just to tackle that and to make sure you know 55 percent is 
is not great. And just to make sure, you know, that everyone's kind of not on the same playing field because I think we've got a long, t- long way to go. But, you know, it feels a bit at least more comfortable as you should do at work. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I completely agree. And um, these sort of microaggressions, which, like you said, Divine, at the time, it might not be uh, possible. It sort of just goes past you. And then a bit later, you, you know, you sit back and reflect and you think, well, actually, that, you know, that really affected me. And I think it can damage people's self-esteem confidence and that affects their ability to be part of a team you know the confidence to engage and it and I've seen that there is evidence that it is affecting the attainment gap in education as well so I think it's such an important topic. If I sort of ask, ask a further question on that is that often when a sort of microaggression like that has occurred and it's almost the sort of period after where the person that's been on the receiving end of that kind of thinks back and so things actually that like you said there was something not quite right about that that was actually quite inappropriate the 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 sort of person that was responsible for that microaggression do you think that there's parts of almost sort of an unconscious element to to what people sometimes say you know what what is kind of driving why these microaggressions perhaps happen i think a large part of it is unconscious a lot of the time it's things that the way they're taught or things that are just the way the the group or society and medicine sees them like uh, we talk about um this thing i heard about the other day the hidden curriculum and that's i think explains it a lot there's a lot of medicine that we teach in the curriculum but there's also a lot that you learn outside of lecture theaters and seminars and things like that the things you learn as you go actually the amount i learn in the first maybe six months of third year was like massive Um, and it's just a lot of things that you don't get taught Um, there's a lot of things within medicine as well that the way they are aren't always the way they should be I think T has a good example about this um, textbook that that Mm. she found and she showed us it's such a vocational kind of career you you learn from the people around you everything's passed down you know this is just how we do it not everything has a textbook rule book all the time. And even we may learn, for example, oh, this is first line antibiotic, but you go into the place and say, oh no, here we do it this way. And it's always just constantly learning and adapting. But what you're doing is you're learning through that person's view and that person's bias and that person's eyes. And that's where it can, whilst it's positive, of course, it can also be dangerous. And like, you know, in, in terms of this Pearson nursing textbook, it was only recorded in 2017. So there's nurses qualified now who use this textbook. And um, there was a literal section on um, how to deal with different races in regards, generally, but mostly in regards to pain. And it blatantly stated that blacks, not even black people, just blacks, um, have a higher pain threshold, which is a common myth now that I've, I've seen. I've friends have been denied any pain medication in labor until you know they're almost giving birth and there's a common misconception and once you hear you know you can hear an off comment from staff on the ward you know oh but everyone knows that you know but but you have a hard pain threshold you do the medication seeking people yeah. medical students learn that and people around that learn that and they take that forward and then they'll teach that to people below them so i think so you need to kind of tackle a culture as well so there's the culture of bias but also i think a good point as a culture of kind of in terms of uh, medics of color is not to um, 
it's kind of like customer knows best and the patient always comes first and even if the patient is being racially abusive you, you just have to smile and take it and still treat it and really we do actually have to look at ourselves and like the patient isn't always infallible you know um so there's there's different kinds of uh, aspects of the culture to tackle but yeah that Pearson textbook you can feel free to to google that that was in record in 2017 it did mention other races as well and religions actually mm. quite shocking I think I remember yeah. seeing it on um yeah. some social media there was a lot being mm. shared around it I think there was yeah some pretty hor- horrendous examples of just like yeah. how does that even get published <laughs> yeah but there's also things that are a lot more subtle that we just kind of take as well for face value so for example bloods and things like that and you see egfrs always if you look at the the results um, underneath it'll say you know people of you know african caribbean or you know black people for their scores you have to times it by 1.21 it actually then means that egfrs are always calculated higher than the you know caucasian or white counterparts and actually you find that that then impacts the thresholds they have for getting things like hemodialysis, getting renal transplant and things like that. And that then leads to worse outcomes. But it's something subtle. Not a lot of people think about it. Not a lot of people know that it's like that. Another example of things that we're taught that kind of inherently then lead to, you know, and affect the way that people are treated. And also, I guess, um, not just things that you're taught, but things that you aren't taught. So obviously there was a lot of... Um publicity over the summer about the the textbook that a medical student had to take upon himself to make for other medical students to show dermatological conditions on differing skin colours and I remember looking back at dermatology lectures that we'd had at the time and thinking wow there's one photo in 50 something slides of a skin condition on a person that isn't white and that's insane because you get into the clinical environment and how are you yeah. meant to identify those things? And it could be, you know, life and death if it's something like meningitis, for example. Thank you so much for bringing that up, honestly, because I've been working quite hard um, over the years to try and get more diversity in, for example, the examples that we get in dermatological teaching, because it, it really, some of the things look very different. And then when you get to clinical practice, I did struggle in GP because there were certain things that came in dermatology related. It, it, was, it was hard to differentiate, it was hard to, to spot because they, we just don't get shown them. And so that's actually another thing that the BMA um, charter is, is trying to address is seeing what changes we can make to the curriculum to actually make it more inclusive, more diverse. It's teaching us the things that we need to learn for all people because we do help all people in the NHS. That's the beauty of it. Um, and so the things we learn should reflect that. And, you know, just paying back on on that, yes, you know, it's like you can look different, you know, on different skin tones. But also, I didn't realise until um, my tutorial on dermatology in my GP block that some pathology is genuinely different, as in, like, location. So, for example, squamous cell carcinoma on white people and Caucasians are more likely to be in spots where most exposed to the sun but on darker skinned people it's more likely to be in places where it's least exposed to the sun such as the sole of the foot rather than you know on the ear or what we're used to on the face on the lip on dark skin individuals must be it's most likely to be between the toes and under the soles of the foot 
And again, that's just something we're not taught. And it's only been taught it's in some exposed areas and you see it on the bottom of a patient's foot, you think, oh, well, it's not very sun exposed at all. So to try and integrate things like that into the curriculum is so important, I think. I think we are trying um, to do that with the textbook. So if you mentioned Mind the Gap, um, which is a free PDF as well, if you want to search for it. But that's, that's really useful. We're trying to incorporate more um, diversity. That's great. Thanks, guys. So, I mean, we've touched on quite a few times the um, this BMA racial harassment charter that was published earlier this year, I believe. Could you guys just tell us a bit more about how you became involved with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I got approached by someone from the pastoral support unit, actually, and she she kind of knew that it was something I liked doing. And she said, this opportunity is coming up and um, we'd really like to get involved. She'd like to get involved. So that's how I was, I was kind of approached to be um, a part of it. In terms of the BMA charter itself, the racial harassment charter, it's actually optional. And in, Leicester is one of the first few um, initially. I think now, by this point, almost all medical schools have joined it um, because now it's become more of a statement if you don't join it. But still, the fact that it was an optional extra, as so often these things are, kind of says a lot to begin with but Leicester one of the first uh, universities to get involved and have a working group quite quickly so really the charter itself has uh, four aims and that is supporting individuals to speak out ensuring robust processes for reporting and handling complaints mainstreaming equality diversity and inclusion across the learning environment and addressing racial harassment on work placements that's kind of the four aims and there's different ways to do that so in terms of our Leicester working group we have um, a few staff leads um, and students and like Divine said we're just dipping in and out of projects if we if we have an idea we're supported to do that yeah I got involved by chance actually I received an email I think I quite like the idea of everyone doing their part to make our profession and the people that we help lives a bit better in any way we can and I think this the work that they do is really important to achieve that also I because I'd recently formed the um, with the help of the rest of the committee, the Leicester University Medics African Caribbean Society, we then were able to form a partnership with them and help with, you know, some of the events and the campaigns and things like that. And I think it's really important for as many people as possible to kind of have their say, because it then means that it's representative of everyone. And it, it needs both staff and students, because, you know, without s students, the staff are, they're almost leading it blind because they don't really know what the students need and the support that we need. And without the staff, as much as students want, you know, it's hard to effect that change. I've been uh, really inspired listening to you, um, Takunda and Divine, about your work, the BMA Racial Harassment Child Working Group. And I'm definitely going to get involved and uh, join you guys uh, here at Leicester. And I was just wondering if there are any other students out there who have been inspired to either join uh, the group at their university or even set one up um, can you just tell us a little bit more about yeah sure so in terms of um, Leicester we have uh, an established working group already um, it's quite informal in nature it's always you know if you want to get involved in a specific project or if you want to raise something um, we've got a team of staff and students in terms of Leicester we're re really quite chill about it all <laughs> um, it is a racial harassment charter but also because it's surrounding um, a lot of EDI as well, it doesn't necessarily have to be in our group anyway, specifically racial based. So if you wanted to do a workshop on something else, our group will help facilitate that for sure. But that is generally the main focus. What I've done before in it, um, I helped kind of revamp the EDI lecture. 
which usually is given at the beginning of first year as kind of a tick box exercise and then it's done never talked about again so I was kind of involved in making sure that's kind of integrated throughout the curriculum making it a vertical theme um, and doing bystander training for first year and third years and that was um, with another one of my colleagues it's, it's literally just in our group anyway it's very chill if you have an idea and you want to get the ball rolling it's quite easy to do um, in terms of the universities I'm not sure how it's done but the each medical school should have a BMA rep. And like I said, most universe, most med schools now have signed up to the racial harassment charter, so they should know, the BMA rep should definitely know what this is yeah. um, and then kind of go from there. And you point of contact, see if there's one already established. Yeah. If you're, you know, thinking about getting involved, I think it's important to know that, you know, it's called the BMA racial harassment charter, but it doesn't just, you know, address issues of racial harassment there's a very wide variety of things that they do. For example, um, things involving the attainment gap, things involving widening participation, things involving, you know, EDI training and equalities and diversity. And so there's lots and lots of different things you can do and get involved with. It isn't just racial harassment. Racial harassment is, and microaggressions are just one small part of, you know, the work that they do. And yeah, uh, as she said, in Leicester, it is quite, you know, um, informal you know you can drop in and out it's it's very flexible because I think they do also realize that a medical students anyway are you know tend to be quite busy quite constricted in their timetable and things like that we have you know monthly meetings it you know you can drop in and out as you please um, and everyone's welcome to input regardless of you know what year you're in your background or anything like oh that. yeah definitely so you know everyone everyone is welcome to come and input because as you know we said before the onus is on everyone everyone has a part to play and everyone can get involved and make a real change and make a real difference fantastic thank you so much uh, so to kind of you you mentioned the role of a, a bystander and divine mm. you mentioned trying to get as many people involved as possible so until recently i didn't really know what what a, a bystander was so um what what is what is a bystander and an active bystander? What do, what does that mean? I mean, in simple terms, being a bystander is you know in in this context a witness um, to harassment, and it's what you do as a witness um, to support the person who was harassed or um, play a part in reporting, um, and that could be racial harassment, sexual harassment, um, any any kind of harassment really, and rather than kind of you know, hearing it and doing nothing about it, actually, you should, to be an active bystander is to kind of step up to the plate and support that person. I know for myself personally, I've in- encountered um, many forms of abuse. I've worked in different healthcare um, practices and as a full-time uh, employee as well. So not just to university, but in my jobs, I've encountered different types of racial harassment. And I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say I, I, I don't report it. And I think it's because I have to weigh up the consequences of, you know, I still need my job. Um, I don't want to, you know, rock the boat, as it were, the dynamic between staff. And, and in terms of, you know, on placement, I know it's, it's been an issue with some people who've mentioned they, they need to get signed off at the end of the day. You know, you feel weird, like, reporting your senior, especially if it's the, you're meant to go to your senior to talk about any problems. But when they're the problem, then who do you go to? Um, so I think active bystanding is really important for all staff and all students to kind of even recognise that it's going on. I think especially now people hopefully will tend to know what microaggressions are 
and know what to look out for. And me personally, if I know someone was kind of on my team or had heard or witnessed it and kind of affirmed that I'm not mad and like that, that, that I shouldn't just let it slide, that would really benefit me, not just, you know, personally, um, but also actually helps to act, like change the culture in the first place. Yeah, I think the, the nuts and bolts of it is that it helps you know what you can do in a situation like that whether you're the person involved or you're a person who witnessed it, because it's not really something you're taught in medical school. We get, we don't get me wrong. We're taught a lot about how to manage, um, you know, stressful or, you know, potentially dangerous situations. So for example, a patient who might be angry or aggressive or a patient who might potentially be intoxicated and acting out of the ordinary, but you, you never really get taught what to do in a case where you receive, you know, that makes you feel uncomfortable and you never really know what to do. I'm ashamed to say that, you know, in third year, I did experience this situation from a patient and I, I did just stand there for about 10 minutes trying to figure out how to end the conversation because, you know, you do feel, you do feel guilty because, you know, you're there to help that person and you do want to help them. So you don't want to walk away. But I think eventually you need to realize that you need to also consider your own safety and your own, you know, mental health in the whole situation. But you never really know what to do. You never really know who to tell. You never really know, you know, how to handle it. And so a lot of the times you let it slide because you're not really sure what to do or if you see it, what to do. And I think this just gives you a little bit support in terms of what you can do in that situation and just sort of picking up on that like um like you said i think if you're in the moment then things can freeze up and i think active bystanding just shows very clearly that certain behaviors they're not accepted by people and i think it, it does break that silence that you know these these silences allow these behaviors to persist and continue amongst the culture but as soon as the silence has been broken and people observing or witnessing the situation support the person who's involved I think it's really powerful because like you said that there's there's concerns about reporting things about your own welfare because you know you need to be signed off you need to maintain relationships but if it's coming from people observing the situation and I think very quickly a culture can be changed and eradicated so I think yeah. we've all got such a big role. The hospital is a very busy place. There's very rarely are, are things happening where there's nobody watching or there's people around. And I think yeah. a lot of the time, you know, we're all we may have been guilty of just sort of avoiding a situation, hearing it out the corner of our ears. But you know, how how much better would it be if we all took up that role of standing up, you know, shoulder to shoulder? and sort of supporting somebody in that kind of position. Yeah. With the the sort of guidance that's been provided through the BMA Charter, I suppose it's setting standards not just for medical schools, but also for the, well, the staff and, and students that are part of that medical school community. And Tukundu and, and, and Divine, you've talked about some of the work that you've done in regards to trying to work to meet some of the standards and guidance that's been explained through the charter and I know you mentioned about we're doing some of the um, equality diversity inclusivity activities that ran with our first years at the medical school and obviously the society that you've um, been setting up and running divine that we'll we'll ask you a little bit more about um, shortly there's 
an issue with first raising awareness that that this is a a bigger problem than perhaps many many people realize particularly those that aren't necessarily going to be experiencing the microaggressions and the and the harassment and also an awareness to actually you know we, we sort of mentioned you, know, you mentioned a little bit earlier on about how sometimes the the people responsible for the microaggressions aren't aware that that actually is racial yeah. harassment. And I wanted to get your thoughts, your perspectives on, and I don't know whether this is something that is is kind of explicitly advised or, or suggested through the BMA Charter in terms of how how do we stop it, the microaggressions happening? Yeah, I think you made a really good point. Um, a lot of what is said, sometimes people don't realise the effect it can have on people. And, you know, I always use the, some kind of analogy, you know, if you if it, you run in, into each other and you accidentally you break my leg you can tell me it's an accident you didn't mean it and that's that's fine and I can take that into account but at the end of the day I've still got a broken leg and I started to deal with the consequences whether you did it on purpose to try and injure me or whether it was an accident you didn't mean it regardless I the, the end result is the same I can take that into account but it didn't make it go away and I think just trying to understand that because I think so often oh but I didn't mean it like that is kind of used as a, a quick apology, it's an excuse you gave it because I didn't mean it when that's not really the reality of it. And you know, when you're constantly battling like battling microaggressions, it, it piles up and it piles up and it piles up. That also starts to change people's perceptions of themselves as well, you know, and um, other people around them. So I think addressing that specifically, you know, I think the easiest way to know whether what you said is uh, inappropriate is just to believe the person who tells you rather than defending it. If the person has been hurt by it and this is, you know, they, they've come to you rather than, you know, defending it or what we call uh, racial gaslighting. Um, and that's like, you know, are, are you sure it, was, it happened like this? Or maybe you're just being oversensitive. That's really not helpful. And it means that it, certainly in my personal experience, having those kind of comments back has made me less likely to talk about it in the first place because I'll just get told I'm mad. So um, just being more understanding generally personally I mean in terms of the BMA charter a lot of it is to do with education so definitely integrating and um, things like racial disparities in healthcare as well in the curriculum um I know a stat that's been banded around a lot this summer was black women are five times more likely to die during labor than white women for different reasons uh, a lot of it to do with the with, uh, withholding of pain medication as well being disbelieved um in, in terms of different things missing certain pathology in labor as well so I think it's more integrating things like that in the curriculum, if just educating, like the dermatology we've talked about before. Um, so just, I think, just being having open ears and open mind and not kind of being on the defence um, is a really good way to start. Um, so Yeah, I think um, what you said, Lisa, is very important because I think the majority of situa- times that it, things like that happen, it is genuinely, genuinely unintentional. But I think the important thing that I always remember is that in a lot of situations like that, it's not so much about the intention of the person, but the impact that it had on the the person that it was directed towards. Doing one thing accidentally or saying one thing accidentally, it doesn't make someone, you know, like a, a racist. I think nowadays people are more worried about being labeled a racist than actually, you know, the thing they may have done or said. And I think we really need to distinguish between that. You, someone can do something that's, you know, slightly racist or say something that's slightly racist, but not in any way be a racist. 
And I think that doing one thing sometimes doesn't need to label you as that. What is important is being able to recognize when you've done or said something that might have hurt someone else to be able to catch yourself and learn from it and make sure that it doesn't happen again. And I think if each person does that, the world would be a much better place. And it's not just to do with, you know, things that are racist, it's to do with things, you know, in misogyny or other things like that, just in general life. If having hurt someone, it is a bad thing, but if you can catch yourself, own it and learn from it so that it doesn't happen again, I think ultimately you are still a good person. Yeah, I think um, what Divine's saying is quite like there's a separation between a racial act and a general, like, you know, personality. I think it's important now in this day and age to kind of call a spade a spade as well. If what you've said to me was racist, we should call it a racist comment rather than flowering it up as something else as well, because that kind of language is really important. And I think it kind of adds to the the importance and the gravity of, of what you have said. But again, as Divina said, there's a huge fear of being called a racist, being labelled a racist. It's, it's more offensive than the racial act itself. It's you need to come out of that, you know. Like Divine said, own it. I've upset someone. I'm sorry, and move on from it. You know, you, you, it's not a label for life. I think a lot of people think see it as a prison sentence, and it's or you know it will affect everything, like job prospects and all this kind of stuff. No, but you have upset me. You need to change. Looking to the future now, I think it's so good that the BMA Charter is has been out and subscribed to by so many universities. And, you know, one thing that I'm thinking about in the future is this this issue of underreporting, because I'm, I'm from a ethnic uh, minority and I haven't ever reported any instances of, you know, times of harassment or microaggressions that I've experienced. And because uh, I, I was doing my research before this and it shocked me when I read that the um, the Equality of Human Rights Commission, they did a survey and they found that they estimated 180,000 students in Britain's universities had experienced racial harassment over a six month period. But uh, when they you know asked universities to show them the record of complaints, it was only, they only had 80 formal complaints over that timescale. And so there's a huge gap and, and it led them to say that, you know, universities, and I'm quoting here, underestimate the prevalence of racial harassment and have misplaced confidence in people's willingness to come forward. Um, so I'm just sort of trying to reflect on that now with the BMA charter in place, with everybody on board, like we also now, I think, have a responsibility and we should take confidence. And I think every listener listening to the podcast should take confidence in being able to report things confidently so that you know we can make the changes that you know need to happen there's so many reasons why people don't report these things and i think when you you know provide a platform for them to feel comfortable to do this then you'll find that there's a lot more than what you know we already know there's a system report and support system Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just a, it's an initiative that multiple unis across the country are, are actually, you know, signing up to and it, you know, doing a lot of good. So I think T will be able to tell you a bit more about that. Yeah, so Divine's correct. It's the report and support system. I think more unis are trying to have something similar or, or that exact system. And it's university, like main universities, so it's not just exclusive to medicine. And I think the big thing for me is perhaps I'd feel more comfortable reporting something if I was anonymous. And that's what report and support does. So it gives you the option to report something anonymously, but also report and support 
you can report something if you've been a witness to the harassment. Mm. So it doesn't have to have happened to you. You can report something you've witnessed as mm. well. And I think that's really important. And that's, you know, all confidential and anonymous if you want it to be. Um, but again, it's raising awareness that that's there. So that's actually been at Leicester University for quite some time, but I did not know about it until a few months ago. So it's just telling people about it exactly. Mm. And so it's just to kind of letting people know it's out there. If you witness something, you can report it. Basically, that means you can start collecting some true data because I'll, I'll be honest, Kish, I think it's way more than the numbers that mm. you've stated. Yeah. And that's just what, you know, people have been willing to say. And I think as well, when you're, I, when I've been asked, you know, oh, when what was the last racist thing that happened to you? Because these things happen so often, it's really hard to think of specific incidents. It's just, you know, it's asking the last time you wore trousers and what were you doing or what colour were they? You know, it, it happens so often. I can't remember specific incidents all the time. And then it becomes normal, like it's part of it's part of my life. Like I've never not had that, if that makes sense. So it's only through talking with other people, my you know, my other black friends, you know, other ethnic minorities that oh actually this this is like a, a commonality. Okay, this is how to deal with it. And I think that's also why what Divine's doing is really important because the first thing I do when I experience something is immediately ask my friends, is this a bit weird? Or, you know, that kind of, just for confirmation that, you know, I'm not kind of making this up in my head. So we've alluded to the Medics African Caribbean Society that um, I believe Divine has helped in setting up. If you could just tell us about the role of that society and what motivated you to set it up. So there are three main basic aims that we have. The first is to bring together medics um, from different African Caribbean backgrounds, both you know socially and professionally, and also to provide a platform for them to raise their voices, ensure our well-being and things like that. And then also to work towards widening participation because it's all well and good bringing together the few of us that are here. Um, but I think it's important to also try to help support and provide opportunities for the people who want to be here to have as many opportunities as they can to make their way to earn their place here in medical school in general you know it it doesn't have to be specifically Leicester just in general I think a lot of different people um, I know a lot of different you know medical students in a lot of different universities and you know it's a running theme that there's always very few of us regardless of where you go and so you realize that it's so easy sometimes to feel isolated to feel like you're never really surrounded by people who kind of share that same experience and so I think it's really important to bring them together um, so that you kind of have that support system and also you see people who are in the places that you want to be I since I've started medical school um, I've always had this saying that you know, medicine is hard, but it's not impossible because there are doctors in the world. And then I think, okay, um, so I, I have an interest in surgery, specifically orthopedics. And when I try to apply that saying, I say, well, orthopedic surgery, yes, it's hard, but, you know, it's possible because there are orthopedic surgeons. Okay, I'm a black woman. It's possible because there are... Uh, and at that point, it kind of falls through because up until a few weeks ago in December, I had never once seen uh, a female, let alone a female of colour, doing orthopaedics um, personally. When I saw the first one, I was 
gobsmacked it was like seeing a unicorn it's it you know so um and it but it really gave me some inspiration because it, it it i could see that it was possible and you know i wasn't going to be capped from achieving what i needed to achieve because of something that i can't control yeah it's 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 great because first of all you know getting the representation first of all at medical schools and then in terms of career progression having a strong support system uh, for for medical students is is really important i think it's really important actually to point out that whilst a lot of universities do have um, an acs in that african caribbean society not many medical schools have their own individual one and i think that's where divine's really kind of pulled this one out of the bag really because already medicine is quite a different course we can, you know we can talk about timetables and things like that but yes in terms of career progression as well it's already difficult as it is and then to add all these extra things on top so I think this is what why what Divine's doing is really, really special and I mean just to echo what she says I can count the number of black female doctors I've personally met in my life on one hand in terms of you know what what can I aspire to yes I can, I can aspire but it'd be nice to see people in my position and that's kind of the thing that keeps me going if I find medicine you know it's getting me a bit down some weeks and it's a bit hard you know my friends that she always said there's not that many of us out there and we need to do it for the people who are going to come after us as well. And that's really what keeps us going, or me going personally. I, I think a lot more medical schools should, you know, endeavour to try to set up an African-Caribbean society for the medics, because just logistically, it's very hard to, with our timetables and things like that, to actually participate in the university African-Caribbean society events. And most of the time, they don't reflect the things that we tend to do. Also, once you get past third year, it becomes, and with clinicals, it's very difficult to engage in things with the university and student union. We don't, for example, we don't get the protected Wednesday afternoons anymore, um, which is usually the time that people would have gone to involve themselves in those situations. So to have one that's specifically for medics takes into account all the different things that we face as well. Yeah, that's amazing work you're doing, Divine. Hopefully there'll be more of your equivalents out there in other universities and medical schools that can uh, can set societies up that are similar as well. Obviously, it's one thing, the universities signing up to the, the charter and also having societies in place. What else can medical schools and their students and staff be doing, do you think, to better address racial inequalities? I think the main thing is just to be open to ideas to be to be open to learning a lot of the time given the opportunity people will talk given a situation where they feel like you know they're safe to talk and they'll be listened to and it could actually lead to some change they'll be happy to share their experiences they'd be happy to engage and i think that's the main thing i think if everyone because it's it's not just one party culpable everyone is involved in the culture that leads to this and perpetuates this students and the people who do it the people who support the people who bystand you know the curriculum things like that there's many different factors and we all have a role to play yeah Yeah, i think it's a good point that you raise that is everyone you know and also whilst it's really good to get people um like us involved you know uh, the people involved would say, oh, we would never have thought of that if you guys weren't involved. We didn't realise that was even an issue until you guys mentioned it. But then it's also having that kind of fine line between 
relying on the people who are affected to kind of teach you as well like it's not our responsibility to change your curriculum whilst we can help and you know of course put our input there shouldn't be an onus on you know the black students you know the the BAME students to affect change everyone should get involved it's not the person who's being it's not the, the problem of the person who's being affected it's what is the people that's it's been done to them if that makes sense so it's in everyone's best interest to get involved and I think especially in terms of changing the medical curriculum, for example, changing the dermatology lectures, it's what if, if one person mentions it, it may get overlooked. If everyone knows that it's a problem and to ask for it, then it may get considered. So I think it's it's definitely strength in numbers as well. And like I said, sometimes people just aren't aware that's even a problem. So having safe spaces to uh, be able to raise any issues, such as our own BMA uh, charter group, which is very friendly, very informal. You dip in and out. You know, you, if you have a project idea you want to do, if you want to just put input on something, um, it's a really good way to get involved. But also the, the casualness of it means that the onus isn't put on students who also have a degree to attain to change, you know, the whole, the whole curriculum. Yeah, it's it's important, isn't it, that, that message that this importance of creating an inclusive inclusive environment is everybody's responsibility yeah. isn't it just sort of picking up again on on some of the points you made earlier about either witnessing an incident of racial racial harassment or being on the receiving end of a racial, racial harassment and that you know through things like the bma charter there is communication hopefully getting out there or encouraging medical schools to 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 communicate and highlight more clearly the mechanisms by which that that can be reported. And you've mentioned obviously about the report and support system Mm. um, and that most universities would have something like that. Would that be something that, how how would it, you know, so for example, there's one of our listeners that's maybe recently witnessed um, an incident or has been on the receiving end of an incident and was like, oh, there's this mechanism that I could report through. How, How would they find it? Yeah, I think it all depends on, you know, the university and their own um, systems. I think it really is important that even though you've got one in the first place, um, like I said, I didn't realise we even had one. No, um, no. But in terms of like, you know, Leicester, it's as easy as typing Leicester report and support and it's quite there, it's quite easy to click through. Yeah. Um, but it's just knowing what's available to you. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm In terms of general help, um, things like your pastoral support units may be able mm-hmm. to signpost you. Um, in terms of work placements, um, there may be individual kind of protocols within your trust if you feel comfortable going that route separately. Um, so it's just kind of inquiring what there actually is. And then in terms of university, p- promoting that that's there. Yeah. Because if yeah. no one knows it's there, no one's going to mm-hmm. report it. And then we're still yeah. going to have no data mm-hmm. um, and therefore not be able to tackle it. Yeah. And obviously that's something that an individual would do sort of after what would your advice be to the to someone who is experiencing it when it immediately sort of happens or they've, they've realized it's happened you know whether it's come from a patient whether it's coming from another student whether it's coming from a, a doctor that's teaching them or a healthcare professional these are the things that you learn as you go and everyone has their own way of dealing with these things I don't claim to be the model example but I think it's important to in those situations remember that that's not what you're there for. You're not there to stand there and accept whatever comes your way. You know, you do your best to help. 
but also you have to protect your own mental health as well. And there's nothing wrong with saying, I think we should, you know, stop this conversation here. I'm just going to step outside and someone else will, you know, do this instead of me. Or it seems like you don't feel comfortable with me doing this. Go and see if there's, you know, someone else. Or just, you know, saying, I don't appreciate the way you're talking to me. It's not my job to stand here and be spoken to like that. I'm here to help you. And I would really appreciate if you allow me to do that. But if not, I think it's best if I just step aside. That's how I found usually is the best way for me anyway to deal with those situations. Um, Because I am quite a mild-mannered, soft-spoken person. Um, I really don't like conflict at all. If I can avoid it in any way, shape or form, I will. And so in those situations, I find that it's best to just try to de-escalate it and step away. Um, and usually when they realize that, you know, they've upset you like that, a lot of the time, not always, sometimes they do, you know, they do apologize and they say, oh, I'm sorry about that. Or, you know, you can come back. I won't say anything and things like that. They realize that you are just there to help them. Yeah, I think um, there's no one size fits all on how to react, really. Um, like Divine says, everyone kind of deals with things differently. Similar to Divine, I'm very non-confrontational. <laughs> um, so in terms of, you know, I think Divine makes some excellent points that i with patient. But in terms of, you know, colleagues and seniors, it's really, I think, no matter what what you do in that moment, it's really important to talk to someone about it. It doesn't necessarily have to be, reporting if you're not comfortable but literally just your friend just to kind of have that release because once these things pile up and pile up you start doubting yourself for the things and it's 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 important to kind of let like not let it go but have a kind of release in in terms of your feelings just letting your feelings out really no matter how you react to it there shouldn't be shame and how to react to it either like you, you also don't want to say to someone well why didn't you say anything at the time well, at the time I felt really uncomfortable and you also have to do a risk assessment do I even feel safe to be still in the room with this person like if I tell them that how are they going to react and they're still not knowing so it's always how you feel in that situation and you only know what's best for you of course it'll be uh, the person should know if they're um they've been inappropriate if you feel comfortable to bring that up to them face to face but also if there's bystanders who've also seen that then they can interject say actually I don't think it's appropriate how you're talking to my colleague that could be very helpful once you may have some support as well mm-hmm. um, and I think it's really important as a bystander to not rely on the person who's being harassed to speak up first because I might not feel comfortable to do it because I don't want any kind of backlash or consequence on me but if they do it then I'll also be like okay fine so it's not I'm not going you know I'm not being crazy like this is actually happened <laughs> so yeah I think that's important. yeah so yeah I just like to echo the idea that you know, not one size fits all, both for people experiencing um, incidents of harassment and for bystanders. So the the the, na- the name active bystander, you know, it doesn't mean um, a confrontational bystander. A bystander is not someone who will jump in the middle of a situation and be con- confront um, whatever's going on. In terms of the active part of active bystander, what can that mean? It can be any variety of things, honestly, a huge, huge variety of things. It can be, you know, it could be speaking in, out in those situations, but also it could be helping that person to find an out of that situation. 
It could be helping to re like report the situation after it's happened. It could be just providing that person support to say, yeah, I did witness that and you didn't imagine it. You're not really overreacting. It, it did happen. Or just telling the person, you know, do you want to talk about what just happened? To me, the way I see it, it's just something really because you know active you, bystander yeah. just anything that it's you think anything. will help the situation anything and, that's yeah. just that you yeah. do or say that just will help that situation even if it's just a little bit and don't underestimate the impact you can have if you've witnessed something any little thing you do to try and help that situation often does mean a lot like I mentioned before, not relying on the person that's happened to you to say something first because you, you don't know what they're thinking. They may not think that you've heard it. They may not know they have that support. I've had before, you know, well, you didn't say anything at the time, so I didn't know whether to say anything or not. Like you've never said, you never mentioned it, so I didn't know. But if something is clearly unacceptable behaviour, then being an active bystander, it's basically just not doing nothing. <laughs> and that's what an active bystander is, it's just not doing nothing, not seeing it and then just backing away it's a really important message isn't it to, to get out i think that brings us sort of towards the end of, of the episode really i know we've, we've touched on so many sort of really really important points and a couple of references to some some really important sources of support or further reading so do you have any recommendations that you would like to share with our listeners i think mind the gap's a good one and also you know, be familiar with your university's, you know, pastoral support, the reporting support system if they have it, or whatever reporting system they do have. Um, social media, whilst it has its pitfalls, is also a really good support tool that I found for myself. So I've mentioned before uh, lack of representation of Black women in particular. So I follow every Black female doctor I can find on Instagram. <laughs> um, two that are really good, uh, Dr. Fab and also Dr. Emile. Um, those two I follow um, and in terms of learning about what because sometimes if you, you want to have to know how or you don't know the what to do generally um, so there are Instagram accounts called like Melanin Medics or ones that talk about specific issues and raises a few of those things med school racism as well and that's all like real stories from people just to kind of highlight what is actually happening. There is a book that I really enjoyed. It is actually called um, Invisible Women. It's about women in data, but there is also a medical and a race section. Brilliant. And I mean, yeah, a fantastic range of, of different sources of support and further information. And we'll um, put all the links to that in our in our recommendations uh, in, the, in the show notes so that people can uh, can check those those things out. So that kind of brings us to the end of the episode. We'd just like to extend a huge, huge thank you to Divine and to Kunda for coming on uh, and for talking about very sensitive and difficult issues. And just, you know, I've, I've learned so much <laughs> from, from listening to you guys and the work that you've been doing. So, yeah, just thank you very much. Well, thank you for yeah, having yes. us. Thanks for having what us. What an honour. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> Big fan. It's been lovely. <laughs> yeah. And I, and I think, yeah, I, I think there'll be so much for, for all our listeners as well to take away from, from this episode. Um, so that's a, a goodbye then from all of us. Bye. Bye. Thank you very much. <laughs>Don't forget to uh, join us next week for another exciting episode. And if you enjoy the podcast and you enjoy this episode, then please do leave us a review and give us a, a follow on Instagram at the Hippocampus Podcast or, or on Twitter, which is at hippocampus underscore pod. 
Uh, but you can also send us an email if you much prefer to our email address, which is the hippocampuspodcast at gmail.com. 